0: The task old England is out to perform with Russia and France to assist, and some help now and then from the brave Belgian men. And it's this to defeat the male defeat. It's a terrible task, and we had to combine, but together we'll wind up. Hello, and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, and I am currently reading the proud tower by Barbara Tuckman, and I'm going to talk with you about chapters Five and six of this book in the previous two episodes I looked at the first four chapters of, of the proud tower which covered topics like American politics and imperialism uh, British conservativism the Dreyfus affair and anarchism in Europe. So these the eight essays that make up the proud tower were never really conceived of as a book i think i didn't mention this before and probably should have it's to the degree i was kind of criticizing the book some of this is just the fault of of what it is it really is a anthology of essays that she had written earlier and put together into this this collection into this book so it's really like uh you know how sometimes science fiction writers would I guess other writers would do this, too, but I think it was most common among science fiction writers of like the mid 20th century is where they had a lot of stories exploring similar themes and they kind of piece them together into a novel. I think like the foundation was sort of that way. And well, Stephen King did that with the gunslinger. You know, there, there was that was a kind of a thing that was done uh, pastiche kind of novels. Um, where they're not really conceived of as a single plot, but maybe common characters or common themes allow them to put together into, a, into one novel. That's kind of what this book is. Um, so it doesn't really fit together. Each of these does stand essentially alone, but they do all seem to, to direct our attention towards, towards 1914, and she's always got that in her mind. She's reminding us of, of this in various ways. Um, so, anyways, the, the two chapters I want to look at today are The Steady Drummer, um, The Hague, 1899 and 1907, clearly doing with uh, the disarmament and, and peace conferences of those years. There was going to be a third in 1915, but. Obviously, that didn't work out. Um, and then Neroism is in the Air, Germany 1890 to 1914, which is about Richard Strauss. It's like a totally different topic. The rest deal one way or another with politics, um, but Neroism is in the Air deals with with um, German's place in European music at the time. And, and and so far, that's my favorite chapter. I think it's the, the most interesting, because I do like music. I, I like Richard Strauss. I like... Uh, German music of the 19th century and and you know this gave me a new perspective on this it it does kind of work as an essay about Richard Strauss not so much about German politics but it ties in a way to Germany's place in Europe at the time and the impression of Germany and that feeds into things we've talked about in the guns of august how Europe's attitude towards Germany changed because of the war she argues that the kind of its cultural position as the center of, of European philosophy and music in particular was undermined by trends of the later, uh, later century, not that there weren't pro- wasn't progress. It was just uh, by kind of sabotaging a tradition. This is how I'm reading it anyways. We got Strauss by sabotaging a, a tradition that went from like Beethoven, the romantic German romantic tradition, the, the Beethoven Schubert. Brahms, Wagner, you know, and all the other greats of that tradition, Strauss moved away from that with his tone poems and with, uh, uh, you know, some of his early operas, Electra and Salome in particular, those that kind of sabotage that tradition a little bit. And she kind of contrasts him to Nietzsche in the philosophical tradition, although she doesn't go nearly as much detail with Nietzsche but he just sort of in the backdrop of this. And then this, then what's the major work of art that people remember from the brink of World War I? It's not Strauss, it's Igor Stravinsky's The Rites of Spring. That's what we often study. That's what you probably will listen to. If you're taking like a survey course in European culture from this era, you'll definitely look at that work. That's the one everyone remembers as the the Titanic of, of European art. The predecessor of modernism, the one that opens that door for The culture that would be dominated by the world wars and all the the chaos the cultural chaos of of modernism which it's really interesting if you take an art history class you're familiar with this right but you know the roots of it go back earlier but you know in a way i think you know you could just look at the french in the same period looking at like art like visual art and you see the same kind of breaking down of, of traditions but there was something kind of special about Germanic music. Germany was so dominant in the musical tradition of, of Europe at the time. I mean, all the greats are German. That's one thing they excelled in. And as their music became uh, transformed, it became co-optable and it became something that other people could do. Um, and that kind of downgraded Germany's place as a center of art. It's kind of a, a, a cultural argument. I don't know if it holds up. Fully, um, you know, I think it's easy to see the rise of other poles of, of music in modernism. But, you know, maybe with art, it works the same way. You know, France had its at the end of the 19th century. France was that center of, of visual arts going all the way back to the impressionists. Uh, and even before, maybe since David throughout the 19th century, France was kind of a center. And then, you know, modernism kind of leads it off a uh, track at the same period that Strauss is working on his operas. So anyways, that, that's kind of what's going on in that chapter. Anyways, five the steady chapter five, The Steady Drummer. So this deals with the Two Hay Conventions, um, things I never really thought too much about. Uh, I'm a little bit more familiar with the peace conventions of the interwar period, like the Locarno the Pact and the, the Naval Arms Reduction Treaties that were passed agreed to, I should say. After the war, I, I I, mean, I think I was somewhat aware of this, but I never thought too much about it, just how much there was this effort at talking about peace, talking about European unity, working out deals like things on war crimes, arms reduction, ways of negotiating problems at, towards the end of the 19th century. Now, these two um, come at very different times, these two uh, meetings in the Hague. The first is 1899. It's much more optimistic, uh, although Tuckman is always reminding us that these the players in these conferences had often other agendas like uh, like Russia was one of the major innovators the one, ones wanted these conf- conferences to go, but they also knew that they could never catch up to Western Europeans' arms or at least not in the short term, so an arms reduction treaty would be to their geopolitical advantage right but Others certainly were legitimately trying to find out ways to avoid war and to limit arms uh, investment. There, the arms race that was already going on in Europe, but it was a more optimistic time. 1907, a less optimistic time. You had uh, this. You had greater crises in imperial Africa. You had uh, growing tensions between France and Germany. You have the Russo-Japanese War. You have the Boxer Rebellion. The Sino-Japanese War of well, I guess that was already done by this time, 1895. But you had a much more violent world by 1907, which suggested the failure of the first Hague Treaty to actually turn the course of, of global politics away from the, the foreign policy anarchy of the time. You know, this idea of based on state sovereignty, states will assert their interest in a in a world where there's no governing bodies, there's no rules uh, and those rules would have to be created. And that's what would eventually be struggled at throughout the 20th century with the League of Nations and the U.N. and the you know, the arms production treaty. So this is kind of the first act of a story that will go on for a century with mixed results. And you could argue perhaps failure. Uh, I don't know if we're in a safer world now than we were in other, uh, throughout the 20th century. But it's, you know, but we're still in some ways in this Westphalian logic in which um, states do do what they want. Um, and we, we see greater evidence of, of, that being a threat to to peace now um, I for one just my opinion on this is I, I don't ex- I don't think the Westphalian system is a very good idea I think yes we need international institutions you know maybe I, I think you know I think the national question is something that has to be addressed I think it's legitimate at times I, I think uh, people should have the right to self-determination at the same time, I don't think states should be able to do whatever they want within their borders. Um, that's often anti democratic, because many of the states that do what they want within borders and claim state sovereignty are less than democratic. And also, it's just even if it is, uh, there are certain standards we need to uphold, right? And we need ways to manage that international institutions, ideally, but um, we don't have that right so we're stuck with this really awkward situation where we have a, this kind of global police force that only intervenes when it's in their interests and it's, and it's not pretty but um yeah greater agreement greater enforceable treaty is the solution so I, I kind of really honor my i tip my cap to what was attempted in these treaties as despite acknowledging as Tuckman does a, a lot of their agendas and attitudes and, and what they were after was, was compromised by national interests from the beginning. Um, but there was great fear about growing competition for arms uh, across Europe. Um, so, But she says like every country saw, so the Tsar Nicholas II is the one who kind of proposed this, but she says each country saw in that proposal its own national interests in a way. And maybe this is why it was doomed to failure Quote, each group saw reflected in the Tsar's manifesto as if in a magic mirror the face of its particular opponent. To Germany, it was obvious that if England did not consent to naval disarmament, the Tsar's gesture would amount to a sword stroke in the water. And only a few days later, the Kaiser pronounced the decision, decisive dictum, our future lies upon the ocean. The British saw one major, the major problem in Germany's naval ambitions. Socialists everywhere were sure that whatever the German-Russian motive had been, Considering the cruelty of Tsarist op- op- oppression, it was not love of humanity. The German socialist Wilhelm uh, van der Neck pronounced it as a fraud. Many peace advocates considered it a response to the Spanish-American War, which seemed to them a prelude of world disaster. Many Europeans were convinced by the taking of the Philippines and the necessity of curbing American expansion. Americans themselves were not yet averse to the thought of the Tsar had been prompted by their victory over Spain. Speaking for the anti-imperialists, Goodkin sadly noted that their that the splendid summons came at a time in the United States was more deeply committed to the military spirit and ideal forcible conquest than ever before in her history. End quote. So motivation is is not trusted here by anyone. And and I think that's still true today. I mean, that's how he feels in American at, at times like I'm not opposed to intervention in every single case. It's but the track record of the United States is so bad and it's so one sided and it's intervention seems so much in Americans' interests, not really in the interest of human rights. You know, it's hard to defend them. But at the same time, I think intervention is necessary um, because, you know, there are struggles for freedom. There's there's oppressed groups. There are unacceptable violations of human rights law that have to be addressed. And with lacking this international institutions to deal with that, you know, can we sit idly by while horrible things happen? Genocide, you know, sanctions? Is that the far as we're willing to go? So that's why we do. Ideally, we have beefed up international institutions. But lacking that, I don't know if one or a whole string of of horrendous interventions means the U.S. could never achieve a justifiable intervention um there are cases of regime change in the 20th century that i think are models of success i think the 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 japanese one the occupation of japan is is perhaps an example of that anyways i don't want to get too much on this this topic something i've been thinking about a lot lately um maybe because i live in east asia and I'm, i'm fearful of a u.s withdrawal from the region might be worse uh all right what's going on else in this chapter a lot of good stuff uh, about the politics of this chapter and the intellectual ideas behind it basically you have um, you have some people like uh, well, you got this guy uh, what's his name Ivan Bloch who wrote this book the future of war who I think it must have been mentioned in the guns of August it sounds familiar um, so that said, basically, the next war will be long and bloody and, and cause social revolution, the transformations at home that none of the belligerents would want. Basically, a war at this stage would be a Pandora's box of bad, uh, not just the human cost, but destabilizing political force across across Europe. Uh, the one-day battle had become a thing of the past. Whole armies would become entrenched for weeks and months at a time. Battles would become sieges. Non-combatant populations would be drawn in. No modern state could achieve victory or the destruction of its resources and the breakup of society. War had become impossible except at the price of suicide, So there's that idea out there, which I'm pretty sure we talked about with the Gums of August. Um, but that's contrasted with, a, with the more social Darwinian ideas out there. Um, and she does name drop Charles Darwin directly, although not social Darwinism. I don't think she mentioned social Darwinism directly, but it's there. And she mentions uh, Kipling, uh, who had this kind of white man's burden idea, but also Captain Mahan, the American we talked about in the last episode, the one who advocated America having a more robust foreign policy in the Pacific, backed up by a stronger fleet, Uh, racial ideas at the time. Uh, we got Henry Bergson who's kind of a I guess a proto fascist uh, who talked about this Elan Vital which is very reminds us of course of the French um, uh, focus on Elan the plan 17 discussed in the guns of August. All right so anyway it's a good essay I think uh, good introduction to the to those peace conferences and some of the contradictions that that maybe made them less ambitious, less less successful than they could have been. Of course, you can't look at the early 20th century and, and think of these as great successes, but you know, they are building to a philosophy that that does uh, make great gains in a later century. So then this brings us to chapter six: Neroism is in the air. So this is, you know, it's not. I think I already talked a little bit about what this chapter is trying to do. I think it's, it's really about Germany losing its place as, as the cultural center of Europe. And I think Richard Strauss is being blamed a little bit too much for this. I think, although I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that's her agenda here, but, um, but there it is. Now, obviously, this is a very formative period of art in so many ways, and she acknowledges it. Quote, quote, Paris remained Europe's center of arts, pleasure, and fashion, London of society, Rome of antiquity, and Italy, the lure of travelers seeking sun and beauty. The new movements and impulses in literature, literature, naturalism, symbolism, social criticism, and the towering figures, Tolstoy, Ibsen, and Zola, great novels from Dostoevsky to Hardy, all originated originated outside of Germany. England, after its great Victorian age, was again in the 90s pulsing with new talents. Stevenson, Wilde, and Shaw, Conrad, Wells, Kipling, and Yeats. Russia, again, produced uh, Chekhov, a matchless interpreter of man. Paintings bloomed in France. Germany and paintings had little but Max Lieberman, leader of the secessionists, Whose secession, however, it took him no further than the presidency of the Prussian Academy. In literature, her, her outstanding figures were the playwrights Gerhard Hauptmann, an offshoot of Ibsen, and the poet Stefan George, an offshoot of Baudelaire and Malmar. In the music, however, Germany had produced the world's masters and had seen the procession crowned by Wagner, whose dogma of a fusion of arts had become a cult, which foreigners eagerly joined Wagner societies from Petersburg to Chicago contributed funds to provide the masters of music dramas with the fitting house and the Bayreuth idea created intellectual ferment beyond Germany's borders. Germans believed their sovereignty of music would continue forever without serious challenge from other countries, while many of them, like the Kaiser, detested Strauss's modernity. His preeminence appeared to them happy proof that German musical supremacy was maintained. So sorry for that long quote, but that's the thesis here, essentially. And then we get this very long essay, like all the essays in this book. They're only like 50, 60 pages long. We get the life and works of Richard Strauss, but also how that is so, those works are so disruptive to that German tradition that it opens the door for Stravinsky, essentially. I think that's where she sh- I think that's what she's saying here. Now the kind of Wagner then becomes this pinnacle of this German tradition, if you look at it this way, right? Uh, the peak of international renown for German art. German music, I should say. Um, and I think there's truth of that. I mean, it, it, it was internationally popular. The, Wagner achieved something that was emulated by composers elsewhere. Even in Italian opera, you saw, if not Wagner, people copying Wagner. You saw the influence of Wagner, you know, like the decline of the recedi- the recitative. You see, uh, you know, the continuous music being used even in Puccini and things like that. So maybe Italy is maybe the... Of a holdout than other parts of Europe, but you do see this the the Wagner cult as being a real thing, right? Even George didn't, uh, what's his name, George Bernard Shaw wrote a book about Wagner. Uh, even W.B. Du Bois talked about about Wagner and some of his work, so he was seen as this pinnacle of German art. Um, and she gets a little bit about this this, uh, Wagnerian culture in Europe, but mostly she's interested in Strauss and strauss is very himself influenced by nietzsche the philosopher and so she spends a lot of time talking about about nietzsche and his works which kind of correspond with strauss's career Um, now of course i think strauss goes much longer than nietzsche though i think strauss was doing all the way into the 40s right she's more interested in this early part of strauss's career when it of the tone poems one of which of course they call thus sprach their serve Thustra, named after nietzsche's book uh the subject of a tone poem um which you probably heard uh then salome and electra and then and then kind of you get a, a a thermidor of strauss's kind of revolution and some of his later operas and then the, but her view is that this sort of opens the door to stravinsky and this kind of dethrones german music now there's certainly an, an element here about art in this case, music and and ideology in Germany at the time. That's that's going to be key as we do think about 1914 uh, coming around the corner. She writes, for instance, art, he announced, this is the Kaiser, should represent the ideal. To us, Germans, great ideal, lost to other people, have become permanent possessions, which only the German people can preserve. He cited the educational effect of art upon the lower classes, who after working a hard day could be lifted out of themselves by contemplation of beauty and the ideal but he sternly warned where art descends into the gutter as so often nowadays choosing to represent misery and even more unlovely than it is already then art sins against the german people as the country's rulers he felt deeply hurt when the masters of art do not with sufficient energy oppose such tendencies In court. so th- there's a there's a problem then with uh with uh strauss's operas his early operas with the tone poems it's, it's it's easier to see a kind of uplifting German ideals, especially like, uh, you know, thus Brocke or right? Building off of the work of one of his great philosophers. But um, but Nietzsche's problematic himself, right? Because he's so disruptive to to traditional the traditional Germanic intellectual tradition, the, the philosophical tradition, which, you know, in her rundown of of all the achievements of of, of other Europeans in terms of art and then saying Germany kind of held out in music as, as the pinnacle philosophy too, right? I, I think, you know, n- later 19th century philosophy, its center is still in center Europe. Um, although I'm not just sure, but I get that sense that that's where it is. Um, maybe not entirely in Germany, but in, in the center part of Europe. So but the opera here's here's the point I want to make. The operas are a little bit more problematic, right? Like Salome, first it's based on a play by this Englishman, and it's it's morally really suspect, right? The 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 theme you have you have you have nudity suggested. Some modern performances actually have nudity, where the performer takes off her clothes. It's a strip striptease, of course, is a centerpiece. Musically it's very dissonant and challenging traditions. It's it's not a tone poem. It's it's much more radical in its musical style. Um, I'm thinking of that great history of 20th century music called The Rest is Noise, which emphasizes Salome as a one of the turning points towards 20th century music. And, and all those developments of, of modernist music. Um, you have her Salome in that in that opera, the Salome demanding the head of John the Baptist, kissing it on a plate. Right. All this is from Oscar Wilde's play. But, you know. It's it's dubiously German, I guess, in its in its theme and in its musical traditions. And Electra kind of had the same problem, it seems. Um, and this is happening at a time in which, as she points out, the, the international community is getting more annoyed with Germans' place in the world. you got this is a growing tension. At the same time, you have growing tension between Britain and, and Germany over the arms, uh, over the naval race. You have, uh, you know, this growing feeling that Germany is a threat to the international power balance and all that. And, th- and she comments on this, quote, the world's increasing irritation with Germany appeared in the eagerness with which Warren Creek seized upon evidence of a decline in Strauss's inspiration. Everyone jumped on... Sinophonia domestica Newman was astonished that the composer of genius should have fallen so low and Gilman revealed other degrees to which Germany was getting on the nerves of other nations, quoting Matthew Arnold to the effect that Teutonism tends insistently towards the ugly and ignoble. He wrote that only a Teuton with a Teuton's failure to act could have contrived domestica. I don't think I've listened to that, though. I listened to a lot of stress, but not that. so, anyway, we've got Strauss, and then we have Electra, which kind of has the same problems um, in terms of how it's, it's seen in this tradition. So, I think that's, 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 that's her main point. And that's why ultimately this essay about art and one artist ultimately becomes an essay about, uh, about politics and international politics and how Ger- Germany's place in Europe. It's really fascinating. Um, so, I, I really, really like this essay. I had a lot of fun reading this one. And it's about music, so that's, that's a great aspect of it. So anyways, I guess that's it. That's all I'll talk about for this episode. Uh, the next episode, we'll talk about ch- chapter seven and eight and finish up our look at the, the Prow Tower. Uh, these chapters will deal first with England, uh, 1902 to 1911, picking up with where chapter one left off, I suppose. Um, we'll see what that title means. And then the death of jaurès which is about the socialist movements from the whole period of 1890 to 1914. So we'll see um, we'll see uh, where those, what those chapters take us. Um, kind of maybe the, the socialist chapter we can kind of, we'll think about the anarchists I guess when we, when we look at that chapter because this won't be the first time she's looking at a radical left-wing movement in this book. So um, anyways, a couple good chapters here. I, I think both are worthy of our attention, both are, as always, uh, of literary merit, and, and give us interesting um, insight. I have problems with this book on a macro level, but I think the individual chapters, uh, with one or two exceptions, you know, they, they hold up. They're, it's, it's good writing, good scholarship, and interesting ideas filtered throughout all of them. So anyways, uh, let me know what you think about any of this. You can send me an email at 100pagescasts at gmail.com. Um but if not, you can just wait till uh a few days and I'll post my final thoughts about the Proud Tower. Uh thanks when for listening. See you then. We wound the the when we bounce up the wall on the rhine press okay how much law we can find with a current fellow hold till the thumb shell to cold when to ground up the walk on the rhymes. When we wound up the watch on the line, how we. Will...